0: Welcome to Intentional Teaching, a podcast aimed at educators to help them develop foundational teaching skills and explore new ideas in teaching. I'm your host, Derek Bruff. I hope this podcast helps you be more intentional in how you teach and in how you develop as a teacher over time. Before we get started, I should say that if you are listening to this episode when it drops or thereabouts in late January 2024, you should know that I am leading a community slow read my 2019 book, Intentional Tech. We are reading a chapter each week together and discussing it online. We've just gotten started here, uh, where this is uh, chapter two this week, so it's not too late to join in. If you're listening to this in January or February 2024, we'd we'll be happy to have you join. Um, please see the show notes for links to more information on the 2024 slow read of Intentional Tech. Now imagine you're coming up on a class session next week on a particular topic in your course. You pull up your lesson plan from last time you taught this course, in this topic and you realize that that lesson didn't land really well there was maybe too much lecture not enough student engagement and you're not entirely sure students came away with much understanding wouldn't it be great if there was a place you could go to find detailed peer-reviewed lesson plans on that topic written by colleagues in your discipline that featured active and inclusive instruction well if you teach college biology you actually don't have to imagine this course source is an open access journal now entering its 10th year that has a variety of peer-reviewed teaching resources for biology, primarily detailed lesson plans tagged by course and by topic for easy searching. Browsing the site right now, I see 267 lessons with titles like Cell Signaling Pathways, a Case Study Approach, and a Virtual Laboratory on Cell Division using a publicly available image database, and Teaching Genetic Linkage and Recombination Through Mapping with Molecular Markers. I don't teach biology. I'm not quite sure what those are about, but they sound useful to me. I found out about CourseSource years ago. I think it was at a conference at Cornell University, and I was amazed at the catalog of high-quality lesson plans and other teaching resources there. I was equally amazed to learn that all those resources had been peer-reviewed. I keep running into biology faculty who don't know about this great resource, which is also kind of amazing. What I haven't found are resources like CourseSource and other disciplines. I reached out to the editorial team at CourseSource to find out more about the project and to try to figure out why biology has a resource like this, but other disciplines don't. On the podcast today, I talked with Jenny Knight, Associate Professor of Molecular, Cell, and Developmental Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder and Editor-in-Chief of Source, and also with Charlene Flowers, Postdoctoral Fellow at CU Boulder in Jenny's lab and the Managing Editor at Source. We talk about the kinds of teaching resources that educators can find at Source, the origins of the project, what it takes to make a project like this work, and how a peer-reviewed publication like Source might help higher education value teaching in more concrete ways. Jenny, Charlene, thank you so much for coming on Intentional Teaching. I'm glad to have you on the podcast and learn a little bit more about Source. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: So I'll start with my usual opening question, which is not about uh, this project that we're gonna talk about. Can each of you tell us about a time when you realized you wanted to be an educator?
1: Okay, so I'll go first. Um, I feel like just throughout my life, I've always had this inclination towards teaching and tutoring and um, talking to my friends about uh, you know, what's going on in our classrooms and helping them understand the content better. I think in graduate school, um, I found that while I was TAing, I was spending a considerable amount of time putting my efforts into improving my TAing and improving the classroom, uh, less towards my research. And so I think that was kind of one of my first indications that, oh, teaching is something that I'm really passionate about and I'm really interested in pursuing.
2: That's great, Charlene. Yeah. um, So I've been an educator for a long time, so it's a little bit hard for me to remember the genesis. (laughs) But nonetheless... um, I had, I think, a, a similar experience to what Charlene has just described and that um, when I had an opportunity to TA when I was a graduate student, I was like, wow, this is really fun. Like, this brings me joy. And, you know, the research brought me a different kind of joy, but there was something about connecting with a student who was struggling that made me feel, I don't know, useful and kind of just made me excited to try again and maybe think of a different way to explain it there was something very satisfying about that process like kind of taking that journey with Mm. a younger person and helping them grow
0: yeah i can i can totally relate to that yeah i i did enjoy my, my my mathematics research but there was a kind of daily uh Interaction with students that, that, that was really satisfying to kind of help see those light bulbs come on and, and help students who thought maybe they could make it through calculus figure out that, in fact, they could make it through calculus. Um, it's pretty rewarding. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Course Source. Um, and I'll start uh, concrete, I think. Um, what, uh, what kind of resources would an educator find if they started exploring the Course Source website?
2: Um, I'll start and then Charlene can can fill in a lot of the blanks because Charlene you know works with the site every day <laughs> um, okay so course source uh, began in 2013 um, I believe the first publication in course source was actually in 2014 and it didn't really start going um, uh, I would say with uh, with energy until 2015 Um And uh, at at that point, um, the the, the vision was to provide resources for people who wanted to teach in a more active way. And so it was kind of, um, you know, fostered by some of the reports that were coming out at that time, like um, Bio 2010, um, Engage to Excel, um, uh, as well as the Summer Institutes on Scientific Teaching, all of these, these events and reports that were occurring in the early um, part of the 2010s <laughs> um, were were really, I think, um, motivating individuals to teach in a more active way. But there really weren't a lot of good resources, so I just wanted to give a little bit of that background. Um, so what what the what the site has grown into is a pretty large repository uh, of of two, several different kinds of articles. Um, we have, I would say the most, uh, the most commonly, uh, used article type is the lesson. Um, and the lessons, uh, provide, um, uh, sort of a, a, tour of, of an individual's, uh, creative, uh, exploration of a particular topic, um, with all the materials that an, th- that, uh, that an instructor would need to actually execute that in their own course. And so those are the the kinds of articles that we have the most of. Um, There there are other kinds of articles. Um, We also have, um, let's see, uh, science behind the lesson, which um, individuals can, if they uh, have written a great lesson, they can also then explain more of the details about the science. Um, and then we also have uh teaching tools and strategies articles. And those are a little bit more, they're less of a lesson and more of like a here are some things that we've tried that are really effective, more of a tool on the tool side. Um and we also have essays um and reviews, but those are less frequently used. We just recently introduced a new kind of article, which is called a lesson plus, and these are um intended for People who have designed an entire course, usually it's going to be like a a course-based undergraduate research experience type of course. Um, And the Lesson Plus allows them to publish sort of a sample of their materials, um, as well as uh, then having in their supplementary files all of the materials. So um, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think our most used resource are the Lessons um, uh, because we, we have so many of them and they, <laughs> and, and they are also, um, they're also, uh, present in our, all of our different, um, individual sub disciplines, you know, so we have both biology and physics articles. Physics is a new addition, but within biology, we have many different subcategories. So anatomy and mm-hmm. physiology, biochemistry, molecular biology, cell biology, genetics, etc., Um, as well as, um, uh, lessons that are specifically on science process skills.
0: Quick follow up: What do you mean by science process skills? I think I know, but but I want to sure. make sure our listeners understand.
2: Of course. So, science process skills um, are. They have. It's understandable that one does not immediately know what science process skills <laughs> are, um, but the science process skills are sort of the term that we've given to uh, the body of skills such as reading research papers. Um, interpreting results, communicating results, designing experiments, formulating hypotheses, those kinds of skills, we call those science process skills.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So the skills that might show up in a lot of different courses, actually. Absolutely. Um, People
2: can tag their articles, their lessons with science process skills, um, or they can actually write an article that is specifically only about science Mm. process skills.
0: Um, I feel like I hear about websites from my K-12 teacher colleagues fairly regularly where teachers are helping teachers and sharing lesson plans. But I feel like this is more rare in higher ed. And just to be clear, the, the journal is aimed at at, at at college level teaching, right? Yes. Um, and the kind of courses that you're looking at kind of cover the whole spectrum of undergraduate biology courses. And and it sounds like you're starting to to reach into physics as well. Is that right?
1: That's right. Um, we're still expanding and trying to figure out how, how to navigate the physics space. Uh, the biology space has been um, navigated very well. Um, another great thing about Course Source are the learning frameworks that we have. So, um, a few of the courses um, will have a learning framework associated with it. Typically, they uh, the learning frameworks were made by a society or a group of people that have vetted the uh, learning framework with the um, with what the society deems to be important skills or important knowledge. Um, so, for example, in uh, let's see, we'll pull up microbiology. So for example, the Microbiology Learning Framework uh, was devised by the American Society for Microbiology, and the framework has a variety of learning goals associated with different concepts or different topics. And so when someone is submitting a manuscript in, in microbiology, they can tag their article with those learning goals. The frameworks also have some sample learning objectives that the authors can also pull from. And so that helps with the, the, both the searchability. So mm. users can find, if they are aware of the learning frameworks, they can find specific lessons that are aligned to those learning goals that they're looking for. But if you go to the course page and look at the learning framework, the uh, website auto-tags the, the learning frameworks, uh, the goals, so that um, anyone who submits an article with that particular learning goal, you can go to that course page and then actually target the specific mm. learning goals you're looking for.
0: So if I'm teaching that course, and I'm kind of structuring my course around this established framework that the professional society has come up with, I might be looking at my le- set of lesson plans for the semester and realize, oh, I, I could really use something different here, and then and then kind of access some options um, through that framework. I love that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The lessons are, are intended to kind of be like cassettes if they're, you know, only... Uh, they, the lessons can range from, you know, maybe an afternoon or a whole class day or a couple class days or a week. And so depending on what lesson is written an instructor could just take it and plop it right into their, into their classroom and replace something that maybe isn't as active, um, that they were lecturing or doing something else before.
0: Yeah. Say more about that. Do you have a kind of standard format for, you said the lessons are your most common type of article. What, what kind of components would I see? Uh, in a lesson that I'm trying to make use of.
1: Yeah, so our uh, lesson um, articles have a template that they follow. So the uh, very at the very beginning of the lesson, after the abstract, are the learning goals and learning objectives, um, and then they have a brief introduction about what's uh, what concepts it does this lesson target. What are some other lessons that have been done in the past? Um, and we have a section on. Um, the scientific teaching themes, uh, which are active learning, assessment, and inclusive teaching. So the authors have to talk about how their lesson um, hits those three areas. Um, The lesson plan itself then is kind of like um, instructions for the instructor of how to implement. There's also a table, teaching timeline table so they can see the progression of the lesson. And then lastly, there's a teaching discussion area um, they don't need to have uh, formal re- results um, the like uh, the, the theory behind core source is that if if folks are using uh, strategies that are evidence-based um, that they we don't need a fully like fleshed out um results, but often the instructors will talk about some common observations about how our students are engaging, if they have any sort of like assessments or survey data, they're welcome to share that. And so they'll talk about in the teaching discussion what worked, maybe some adaptations or modifications for the future, how could you use this maybe in a different discipline, for example, or online. Uh, So the teaching discussion kind of brings everything together to kind of show how how it went and some possible avenues for the future.
0: So uh, one thing I've observed is in working with faculty, I remember I was doing a a summer institute a couple of years ago, and I did a lesson planning activity with a group of faculty. And I think these were biology and math faculty I I was working with. And I had some sample lesson plans that I had kind of scavenged from the internet. and a couple of my own, and we we kind of looked at them together and we annotated and we thought about kind of the teaching choices that were represented in these lesson plans. And it really got me thinking about the lesson plan as a as a kind of communication device. Like, how do you describe what you're doing in a class? And I, mm-hmm. I remember one of the faculty members said, yeah, m- my lesson plan is a post-it note with a few words scribbled on it that I stick on the computer in the classroom when I walk in, right? And so... Um, and honestly I think I had a course source uh, lesson in this mix of of sample lesson plans and some of the faculty found it a little intimidating because there was so much there right yeah. so so what kind of feedback do you get from f- faculty who might use these lessons in terms mm-hmm. of kind of making sense of such a robust resource and making it kind of work in their own teaching
2: what what I've heard is that Um, people often feel like the depth of the information is, is very useful because they have a very clear idea of how that person used it in their course. That does not restrict them to using it in exactly that way, nor does it, um, nor do they have to be as organized basically in their use of it. So because we ask authors to be very specific and fill in a whole set of details, we give we give other people the opportunity to use it kind of exactly as it was designed, uh, which lowers perhaps the barrier to inserting something into your class, especially if you're maybe not super familiar with the principles of of active learning or getting students to talk about something or, you know, doing something other than lecturing, basically. Um, At the same time, I would say that um, while uh, so so I know that people have taken course source lessons and just adapted them and made them made them their own, which is great. We we love that. Um, and we also know, uh, which is a slightly different answer, um, or it's an answer to a different question than what you asked. But we, we do know that that creating a core source lesson is quite a heavy lift for people. So we, we run workshops. We've run many workshops over the years. Um, and, and you know, we, we continue to run workshops. We're running one at the Sabre West conference um, in just a few weeks. But that is our way of helping people get their resources into a lesson format because there is a lot required. Um, it's doable, uh, but it, it helps to have, you know, uh, to have a little bit of guidance in a workshop. So, you know, long and short of it is, yes, the template has a lot in it. Um, we think that that really helps other people see what they can do um, and provides them with any resource they might need to execute it. But but it, we're all very happy to have people just take it and go like, oh, this is a good idea. I can adapt this however I see fit. You know. And that's great. Yeah. We support yeah. that. Well, and I think a
0: lot about, so I, you know, I work at a teaching center. And so my field is mathematics, but that often is not relevant to what I'm doing, right? I'm, I'm working with faculty from a variety of disciplines and helping them think through active learning instruction and other teaching choices they might make. And I often have an example of something that's worked in someone's classroom, but there's this kind of um, translation difference, right? So uh, I feel like if I did some kind of small group activity in a math class and I talked to a physics or a biology educator, there's some translation that needs to happen there, right? It's a different discipline. It's a different class context, Right. I'm teaching majors, you're teaching non-majors or vice versa. And then if you move kind of outside the STEM disciplines, there's even more translation that has to happen, right? And I hear this sometimes from faculty in a workshop who are like, sure, that would work fine in a history class, mm. but I teach chemistry, right? Mm-hmm. And so so one of the things that I love about Coursera is that you're trying to really close that translation uh, gap, right? We're saying... Not only is this in your discipline it's in the course that you're teaching right and so it's 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 a very close translation but it sounds like you know there's still room for adaptation yes, so i
2: absolutely. can I can see
0: here's how it works in a class very much like mine but I also need to kind of make it work for my own uh, my own teaching my own lesson plans my own approach are there things you do to try to kind of make that adaptation a little easier for for educators who are using the site <laughs>
2: I I think one of the things that can happen uh, that we encourage people to do is in their lessons, they, um, if they have ideas for how it can be executed online, for example, versus in person, or if they have adaptations that they think would make the lesson work better for an upper division course or a lower division course, just depending on how they had designed it, we encourage Mm -hmm. them to add those components into the lesson. So that, that is a way that perhaps somebody who teaches it at a slightly different level could get some ideas. Um, I don't know if there are any other resources along those lines, Charlene, that, that I haven't thought of.
1: Yeah, I think, as you said, like in the lesson plan or the teaching discussion, they can bring up those ideas. I've seen lessons where someone has implemented it with freshmen and upper division students. And so they'll provide two lesson plans, two teaching line, timeline tables, um, and show the differences between how the upper division students maybe had to do a little bit extra work or something. Um, I've also seen um, kind of getting what you were um, asking about, um, like other people's using it. There have We have a comment uh, feature on all of our articles. And so folks can um, provide a comment um, and upload uh, documents. So um, I remember reading um, someone had... And like I think it was in some sort of ecology lesson that they had implemented, and so they wrote like this really nice like two page paper about how they implemented it, and what they did, and like what worked. And it was it was really nice to see how uh, see that implementation and see see the things that they suggested uh, to help others if they want to implement that lesson as well.
2: Yeah, and and what Charlene's just described is like exactly what we'd like to really um, encourage for the future. Uh, we need to figure out how to actually do it on our platform in a, in a seamless way. And that, that's kind of what's holding us up at the moment. Cause the comment area is not ideal. <laughs> um, but, but what Charlene's just described would, would be such a nice addition so that people who are like, Whoa, I don't know if I want to do it that way. They can see how other people have adapted it.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the reasons I reached out to Charlene a few weeks ago is that I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by uh, this kind of unsolved problem in higher ed, which is we have really great ways to know if people are reading and citing our research publications. <laughs> we don't have mechanisms for uh, kind of tracking the spread of teaching ideas and teaching materials, right? So in theory, you know, if I'm a biology faculty member and I've come up with a really fantastic lesson for a particular topic in a particular course and I put it, you know, I get it, I get it on course source um, and lots of people use it and adapt it. Right. That should reflect well on me. Right. This is how our research evaluation and assessment works. Right. When people build on my work <laughs> as a researcher, um, then, you know, that's that, that's CV building. Right. That's helped me get tenure. And we don't have the kind of tracking mechanisms to even know if people are using my, my lesson plan, my, you know, my teaching strategies, you know, unless you, you know, write a book about it or something, and people cite that it's, 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 it's hard to, to have that kind of mm-hmm. feedback. And so I can imagine for the authors who get that kind of comment, right, to say, I use this, here's what I loved about it. Here's how I adapted it. Um, that's. I mean, I, I would find that pretty gratifying as a, as a contributor to, to get that kind of feedback.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I, I would like to say that we, we do actually have a really nice feature um, where you can see as an author, well, anybody can see this. Um, we have how many times an article ha- or a lesson, excuse me, has been downloaded. Mm-hmm. Um, on the website. And so there is that, uh, although it's not like a, this official type of uh, tracking mechanism that we have for research articles. If somebody was, for example, wanting to cite their core source article as, as a major contribution um, mm-hmm. on their CV or something like that, if they're going up for promotion, they can say, I wrote this core source article, it has been downloaded or accessed, you know, a thousand times that doesn't mean that it's been implemented a thousand times course, so there's sure. no way to actually track that but it's essentially like a citation it means someone was interested enough to go there and and look at it sure
0: well and that's a metric you see on research articles too which is kind of downloads and views which is again not the same thing as being cited but uh it you know it has it, it it does have some meaning i think in terms of of how many people find your work interesting and worth looking at yeah let's um Let me ask the question that you started to answer earlier that I hadn't asked yet, but how do you work with authors and what is that process like? How do you recruit authors and what's the, because there's a peer review component too. So, so what is it like to be a contributor to source?
1: So the way we've uh, gotten kind of the word out there is we have our social media, we have blogs, we partner with societies and um, conferences to kind of get the word out there that, hey, source exists, you should submit an article. And on our uh, submission page, um, once they have uh, submitted all their materials, uh, we get uh, we have a team of editors that um, uh, that get assigned and reviewers. So it goes through a regular peer review process, and then once they've received the decision, um, they can then revise and then resubmit. And so the goal of Core Source is that. Uh, we are cheerleaders and we want to uh, be mentors and help um, everyone who submits an article uh, to be able to publish. Mm-hmm. And so um, we use our, the peer review system and the editors to um, help um, improve the article. Um, and give them some feedback on what, what to change to um, help get it to the next stage of a publication. So once it's accepted, then we have a final stage of editing, and then to publish online um, on, on our website. And there's also the PDF component that uh, folks can download as well. Um, I've, I've heard from uh, people who have um, engaged with uh, submitting an article that, uh, the the peer review time is is pretty good. Uh, we have a, a pretty good turnaround time, but uh, I'd say that uh, we have we have pretty good uh, turnaround that folks who submit and end up also um, getting to the acceptance stage. We have we're pretty relaxed on um, the revision time. So as long as an author uh, addresses the comments and resubmits, uh, there. They have a pretty good chance of getting their article on core source.
0: So where some journals would have um, perhaps be kind of proud of their rejection rate, right? Only eight percent of articles get get accepted. You're actually kind of aiming for a hundred percent, right?
2: That's right. Yes.
0: Yeah. So the idea is that you know you've got kind of a bar that you want to clear in terms of the quality of these teaching materials. And ideally, everyone would get there. It may take them longer, right Some people longer than others, um, or more rounds of revision but um that seems consistent with what I know about good teaching as well
2: <laughs> yeah yeah we we you know we really want anybody who has gone to the effort of thinking about how to share their materials. We really want everybody to be able to share their materials and and just as you said. Sometimes people submit something that's really not quite ready um, and that's okay. Like we just, you know, Charlene sometimes has to send things back and say, well, things are missing from your, from your manuscript and you need to add these things before we can even set it out for review. Then, you know, once it passes kind of her check, she has a lots of different things she has to check. Then, you know, we, we go to the review stage and and then it, as she's indicated, you know, it can go quickly or it can, it can take a while just depending on on how people feel about, about the materials that have been presented, but yeah, we work. We work with people, even over kind of lengthy periods of time. We've had, you know, people uh, put their article in. Revisions have been requested, and they'll say, you know, gosh, I'm so busy this semester. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get to these revisions until next semester. We're like, no problem. That's you know part of the process. We will work with you for as long as it takes. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Do you have a record? Do you have a record <laughs> for the longest?
2: Oh, well, we we do have a few um, people who basically kind of dropped off of the the mark altogether. Like after two years, we kind of consider them, okay, you submitted something, but we never really got to the end with you. There are very few people like that. I don't know about the success, how long we have like a person (laughs) who's maybe been successful. I don't know if Charlene maybe knows that.
1: I've, I have re- I there was one that came in recently that I think we recently accepted and it was first um we first received it in like 2020. So it can okay. be many years so, that your- yeah. they'll yeah. revisit their article and resubmit and we're like, "Oh, this is great." Yeah.
2: <laughs> and that's not the standard. I mean, obviously most people kind of want to get their things in and and sure. taken care of, but there are some people who just get, you know, stuck with something uh, just not enough time to to complete yeah. the process. No,
0: I get that.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, I agree with Charlene. Like, we've really managed to increase our, I should say, decrease our time um, of of responding to authors and getting getting their articles in online. Um, and we're, we're very proud of that, because for a while, it was extremely slow. We just didn't have enough people um, in sure. the in the whole works. Um, but we're always looking for new people. We're always looking for new reviewers. Um, we, we definitely need to increase our numbers in the physics area. Since we've just expanded into physics, we still, you know, we, we don't have a lot of submissions yet. But we also, you know, we need more people just kind of to hear about it so that they're excited about um, using It as a resource, but yeah, we're always looking for new um, editors, reviewers, all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I would guess it helps. You know, you're going to try to match a reviewer, you know, who has experience teaching the course in question.
2: Absolutely, yeah, that's kind of the ideal case. Yeah, we ask people to. um, We don't ask people to review things that they're not at all familiar with, Um, and then you know, ultimately, everything at the end goes through me. (laughs) I'm like the last stop, Um, uh, and so. I, I you know I do I do look at everything that, that, that comes through um, but I also rely heavily on the review process so that you know I don't I hope that I'm not actually having to review the article I'm simply checking uh, reading you know de- deciding that I agree or disagree with you know what needs to be done next um, Yeah. Because I certainly wouldn't have the bandwidth to do it all, you know. That's why we have so many people along the way. Is that we have to distribute the work because you know we're a volunteer organization. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So I mentioned that there are other disciplines that don't have peer-reviewed journals like CORE Source, but um, uh, I, I know there are a variety of kind of open educational resources that you can find that may not have the same kind of um, kind of system in place. Uh, to To try to kind of vet for quality, but um, I guess I'm curious, and and I think you might have perspective to answer this. Is there something about um, biology education and kind of your discipline in your field that makes a resource like Coursera possible? Hmm. Do you think there's like a, a kind of a matching here between what you've built and kind of how people work in your field that maybe a little unique to biology, maybe not completely unique, but a little bit unique to biology.
2: Maybe um, it's a it's a really good question. Um, I mean, I've been with the biology education research community pretty much since its inception, <laughs> um, and uh, I, I will say that it you know it was a, a uniquely motivated group of people who really started coming together um, around a shared vision, and 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 part of that was the Summer Institute, a lot of us came from the Summer Institute that Joe Handelsman and Bill Wood started um, in 2004, I think was the first year. Um, Many of us who then went on to really, to form Sabre, our disciplinary society, many of us were at those original Summer Institutes and were highly motivated by our interactions with our physics colleagues who were already doing this kind of research. Um, and, And so, It may have been a happy, happy coincidence or a happy coalescence of, of people. Uh, but there were some, you know, some big name scientists who got behind the idea and, um, that gave it some traction, I think, with, um, university, R1 university faculty who maybe hadn't thought about how important teaching was. (laughs) Um, and so I think that that kind of that that galvanized the community in a way that perhaps didn't happen in other disciplines like chemistry, math, geosciences, et cetera. So so perhaps th- there was this special grouping of, of individuals. I, I don't know how else to talk about it, but you know, that that group of, of individuals who were trained at the Summer Institute, we stuck together and and we really, we, we really um helped each other. Many of us were non-tenure track at the time, um, and many of us are are now tenured, <laughs> and so so it, it kind of changed the trajectory of our careers. And I think it, it it was a powerful time for all of us. And so so maybe that's how, core source, the institutes, the workshops, the research, they all kind of they came together at the same time.
0: Well, and what I'm hearing is that, you know, there was this kind of blossoming of the field of biology education research. Yes. And to take that field seriously, you you need certain types of structures and institutions, right? And resources, tools. And resources. Yeah. And tools. Yeah. Yeah. And because as you notice, as you note, like, you know, there are folks who were outside the tenure stream 15 Mm -hmm. years ago that are now in tenured positions in biology education research. Um, Yes. And um, I, 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 I work at the University of Mississippi and uh, we have uh, our biology department has now hired two tenure track assistant professors in biology education research. And so that's a that's a new development awesome. for the university. <laughs> um yeah. Chemistry is trying to get theirs. Um, they've they they're running a search right now, um, and so that'll be a new kind of you know way of of being a, a biology department, right? Um, it's a kind of different type of faculty member that you've that they've recruited, but I'm I'm hoping for great success there. But structures and resources like CourseSource are kind of part of what makes that possible. So, well, what's next for CourseSource? You said a little bit about some things you'd wish, but what what's what's next for CourseSource?
1: Honestly, it's expanding that physics side. We've been trying for a while to get traction and uh, Jenny has some exciting developments on how we might get more people involved with physics. Um, One thing that's interesting is with, you know, in biology, we have all these different disciplines that have societies that have learning frameworks. And so we've been able to like pull in uh, those learning frameworks and because uh, we think having those is, is best for our articles, right? So we, we want to develop more frameworks. And within physics, it doesn't seem like they have these sub-discipline societies. And so that'll be an interesting path forward is figuring out, like, if there is some sort of learning framework for physics, what does that look like? Who decides what goes in there? It, I think it'd be great to have some more learning frameworks on the physics side, but that that's a huge unknown for me. That's very interesting territory.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'll echo what Charlene said that we, um, we, we do have a a small grant from the American Institute of Physics to run some workshops for, um, people who would like to publish in core source. We're starting with integrating core source with Physport, which is a pre-existing um, uh, portal uh, that Sam McKagan runs that that really draws a lot of um, physics teachers in, um, and there's a very low barrier to entry. And so our idea is to try to get people who are already submitting things to Physport to kind of go through the process of Both sharing their their stuff in PhysPort, but then making it into a peer reviewable publication. So we think that that will really increase our numbers for physics. So we're excited about that. Um, But yeah, what what Charlene is saying about the frameworks, you know, we've just we've discovered that's super important on the biology side because it really does give people an understanding of you know what what people in the discipline think students should be learning in that subdiscipline and that really helps guide authors in uh, choosing their their you know their objectives. Um yeah, so I I am sure we can make that happen in physics. It's just it's a, it's a little bit of a narrower discipline. There aren't as many subdisciplines as as Charlene said. So, yeah, that's that's I think it's a big push for us. Um, we had a very generous donation from Carl Wyman, uh, to get the physics side kind of rolling. Um, despite that generous donation, we've, we, have it has been, it's been slow work that the physics yeah. community is just like, what is this thing? We already have our own thing. So that's why we partnered <laughs> yeah. with Physport and we think that that will, will help us. Um, and of course we intend to keep the biology side going and expanding and we're getting learning frameworks up onto all the other, uh, we have a couple of biology subdisciplines that didn't have learning frameworks, and we're getting all of those taken care of now. So we, we feel like we're on a good path to continuing to serve the community, both communities, biology and physics. Yeah.
0: Well, that's great. Well, thank you again for coming on the podcast and sharing. And it sounds like, like happy anniversary, right? 10 years, <laughs> of course, source.
2: Great. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for sharing here on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Dirk. Thank you.
0: That was Jenny Knight, Associate Professor of Molecular Cell and Developmental Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, and Charlene Flowers, Postdoctoral Fellow at CU Boulder. Jenny is the Editor-in-Chief at Source, and Charlene is the Managing Editor. In the show notes for this episode, you will find a link to Source, as you might expect, as well as more information about Jenny and her lab and her lab's work. One thing I like about Source is they don't require contributors to provide rigorous evidence of effectiveness of the teaching resources they contribute. We know certain forms of instruction are more effective than others when it comes to student learning, so why make instructors reinvent those research findings? That kind of educational research is important, of course, but it's a big lift for a lot of faculty who have limited time or resources for such things. Course source provides a way for an instructor to share their great teaching approaches with the wider community in a scholarly way without requiring, say, an institutional review board review of their project. We need more mechanisms like this for sharing teaching. I can't tell you how many times I cited some faculty members' blog post about their teaching strategy in my last book, because that's where the information was about their teaching. It's great to have that kind of venue, and it's great to have discipline-based education research, but it's also useful to have something in between. If you know of other publications like Source and other fields, please let me know. I would love to see more things like this out there and learn how they function. Or if you have ideas on how one's contribution to the wider teaching community might be better recognized in the tenure promotion and reappointment processes for faculty, I would like to hear that too. Intentional Teaching is sponsored by UPSIA, the Online and Professional Education Association. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the UPSIA website where you can find out about their research, networking opportunities, and professional development offerings. This episode of Intentional Teaching was produced and edited by me, Derek Bruff see the show notes for links to my website, the Intentional Teaching newsletter, and my Patreon, where you can help support the show for just a few bucks a month. If you found this or any episode of Intentional Teaching useful, would you consider sharing it with a colleague? That would mean a lot. As always, thanks for listening.